did a couple of weeks ago a series on the uh, Old Testament book of Jonah. We're continuing that today. We're up to uh, Jonah uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. Quick review, Jonah's world-famous prophet, very successful. God comes to him and calls him to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, worst people in the world, uh, and wants him to go and proclaim uh, the gospel to them. Jonah decides that he doesn't want to do that. He goes down to Joppa on the seacoast, buys him a ticket, gets on a ship to head to Tarshish, which is as far away from uh, anything as you can go, if you go past Tarshish, you fall off the end of the world. And so uh, he has done that. He's on a ship. And last week we read God has hurled, that's the language, hurled a storm. Uh, and the ship, as we'll see in just a few minutes, is in the middle of a storm that's about to kill everyone on the ship. So uh, in light of that, uh, let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll read the text. Lord, uh, thanks today that... Um, you, you love us. You are concerned for us. Uh, Lord, I'm so encouraged today that you love Jonah. And uh, uh, Jonah is, uh, well, he's a hard one to love. And yet uh, you do it, and you do it faithfully. So would you bless us today as we look into this text? Would you open us up? Would you give us the gift of repentance? Would you make us soft uh, to your word and make us quick to respond. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jonah, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the text is on the screens and, and the bulletin. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. So then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So this, this is a great text, and the thing that's so great about it is, is, is one of the things that we th uh, think, I think most of us think is, is that Christians are better people than other people. <laughs> right? Don't we think that? We think Christians, well, they're supposed to be better people. Let's put it that way, right? They're supposed to be better people than other people, right? And there's no doubt about it that the Christian gospel, the truth of the scriptures uh, is, and I can tell by the looks on your faces, you don't want to hear the rest of what I have to say. So I think we've, I think we've already run out of coffee, and so sorry about that. Um, but that, that's what we got. That's what we got this morning. So I, I just think it's a, gr a great question to ask, right? I mean, especially in the foment and the difficulty that w we find ourselves in. And, I, and, and trust me, I, I want you to understand something here that I am very clear about, and that's this. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, there is a lot of uh, sin, a lot of depravity, a lot of abomination. The world's full of it. Let's be clear about that. Um, and let's also be clear that the Christian gospel, the truth that we find in the scriptures, uh, is uh, the pathway to life, and it is uh, the richest and uh, clearest 
and best understanding for us for the grace of God, the love of God, the design of God, all of those things are true. And that uh, the people of God, the Jonas, have received this word and we know it inside and out. And so the question is then, what good are we? Years ago, uh, my dad uh, retired three times, or well, yeah, three times over the course of his life. And, and he, would, he would stop whatever job he was doing. And uh, he had a little farm that uh, mom and dad lived on up until the very last few years of their lives. And, uh, it, you know, he had his blueberry bushes and his blackberry bushes and his fig bushes. And he had some chickens and uh, he had... Uh, he had a little Shetland pony for my nieces. He had all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, uh, it was a great little place, but it wasn't enough to keep him busy. So after usually about six weeks, my mom would say, you know, it's time for you to find something to do. And so um, in one of his uh, retirements, he did something completely out of character. He joined the lo local Lions Club. And... Uh, uh, you know, that was a shocker to me, like, because he was not a club kind of guy. And um, um, I didn't really understand that, but that's what he was doing. I, I thought, well, he's trying to figure out what to do with himself. And so um, my mother-in-law, uh, Marty's mom and dad, who were good friends with them, you know, my mother-in-law went to him and said, what are you doing? Why are you joining the Lions Club? And not that Lions are, are, are particularly bad. I don't know... I, I've spoken at Lions Club meetings before. They don't seem to be any more uh, off track than any other meetings that I go to. So I, um, <laughs> um, uh, but my mother-in-law's like, you know, if you're going to do that, do more at the church. Well, he was already teaching Sunday school and singing and all of that kind of stuff. He was an elder, and um, he just looked at her and he said, well, what's our church doing for the blind? You know, the, the lions, their whole charity is built towards helping blind people. What are we doing for blind people? Now, I, I say that dad didn't reach into a hat and say, who is, you know, who's, you know, poor, crippled, whatever. I mean, there are a million different organizations that he could have chosen from to, to give his time and energy to. But he had a special concern for the blind because... He worked uh, a big chunk of his career, his working life, for the United States Post Office, and I think he hated uh, six out of seven days that he did that. And, but the one, one of the few things that he liked about the post office, at least when he worked there, was that blind people got free postage. And he thought, you know, there's a mercy there. There's a, there's a good thing there. I can, I can get behind that. You know, I can, I can feel like that's that's a, that's, that's a positive thing. That's a way where I'm actually serving and that actually a way that, um, that, that's a good thing, right? I don't know how my dad ever got to be an elder because he was very direct like that, and, um, but people put up with him and he worked for the Lions. He would sell um, uh, brooms and he would collect eyeglasses. So uh, he did that for a number of years. Were some blind people helped with that? Maybe. I don't know. I hope so. 
Sometimes I wonder, you know, if we were, if suddenly, for whatever reason, this congregation evaporated. Would anybody miss us? I think some would. I think some folks in the neighborhood would be sad if we weren't, weren't here anymore. I hope so. I hope we're doing some good beyond the fact that we have the truth and we know it and we teach it and we proclaim it. Sometimes I wonder if people who aren't believers in many ways don't behave in ways better than people who are believers. You ever wonder that? It's interesting as we look at this text, right? Because here we have this situation. Brian, you can go ahead and put my, put my notes up there. We have this situation where the people are in the boat, and they're all in the boat together. We're all in the same boat. And the boat is about to sink, right? And so those poor mariners, those poor sailors are on that boat know they're in trouble. And so they're using every means at their disposal to figure out how to save the boat and save their own lives and save the lives of the other people who are with them. And so they cry out to their gods and they lighten the ship. They use whatever uh, means they have to figure out how to preserve life and, and how to hold this thing together. And the one true believer in the boat is asleep. I spend a lot of my time asleep, right? We're going to look a little bit more about why it is that, uh, uh, that Jonah's asleep, but I just think it's an interesting question for us. Now, let me be clear about something. Uh, there is no spiritual good, no, no worth in doing things, even great things, even beautiful things, even good things. There's no spiritual merit, no spiritual good in that, except as it is done in the name of and in the power of Jesus Christ. However, we also know that much uh, every good and perfect gift in the world, regardless of what kind of person it comes through, ultimately comes from our Father in heaven, right? And so we can rejoice and we can participate uh, in the mess that we're in with and look for uh, good that can be done uh, in and among uh, our world, right? So as we look at this text today, I want us to probe that just a little bit because it is a, it's a pretty interesting picture to see that Jonah, the one who has the best theology, in fact, the only one who has the true theology on this boat, uh, is, uh, well, how helpful is he? And as we'll see next week, you know, he, he never really cries out to his God in the midst of what he's doing. So let's unpack a little bit to see what, what, uh, what, what, what we can learn about Jonah today. And that's why I prayed earlier. I just, it's remarkable to me that God loves Jonah because I think, I think he would be a hard guy to love, especially if you're on a boat with him and it's sinking and he's not helping. <laughs> right? 
I think that would be challenging, right? So Jonah, at the very first verse of the book, has been told to arise, and now that very word that Jonah's God used to call him to go to Nineveh is in the mouth of an unbeliever, arise. Isn't that interesting, right? So, so Jonah, for whatever reason, thinks he's getting away from God, thinks, thinks that uh, he doesn't want anything to do with God's mission to Nineveh and that he's going to get away from it. And here he is. He finally gets on the ship. They're out in the sea. He's asleep down in the deepest part of the ship. And the captain of the ship, an unbelieving idol worshiper, comes to him and uses exactly the same word to him that God had used to him. Get up. Do this. Wake up. Arise. And so what, it, it, it had to be a message to Jonah that you may think you're getting away from God. You may think you're able to run away from him. You may think that you can go somewhere else where he's not, but God is after you, Jonah. God is on you. He is with you, and he is not going to let you go, and he is going to pursue you. So whatever Jonah may be thinking that he's doing, God is after him, and God is even speaking his word to him through an unbelieving captain of this boat. So you can only imagine what it must have been like for Jonah to, to, to hear those words, right? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this, the words must have seemed to Jonah like a haunting echo from the past, exposing once more the guilt of his flight from God. Now, one of the things that I know that is uh, so true about this is, is that the, the fact is that sometimes guilt, our guilt, and our inability to actually appropriate the good news of the gospel makes us largely ineffective, right? So maybe Jonah's guilty, I don't know. I, I suspect that he's not very guilty or not having a sense of his guilt because uh, he's on the run and he seems to me to be hardening himself even as the storm rages around him. So next slide. Uh, so the sailors know that they're in trouble, and they're using everything at hand to deal with their peril. And though their gods are false, it makes sense to cry out. And I want to be clear about this. You know, this, a missionary would look at this situation and think, aha, you know, there's, there's some fertile ground here. Are they worshiping the wrong God? Yes. If they continue to worship the wrong God, we know what their destiny is. All of that is true. But you know what? They know they're in trouble and as they are in trouble, they're thinking, there is someone or something that is outside of us that is powerful enough, someone who is powerful enough to intervene in this situation. I want his help. And so that is, that, that's, not, that, that's a great place to begin, right? The, they're, they're not saying, you know, there, there is nothing else out here. There's no one else out here. They're recognizing that there must be a God, right? And they, they have a God, and they're doing the crazy things probably that they probably got their little idols there, and if it wasn't so wet, they're probably burning stuff to them, you know? I mean, they're, they're like, whatever we got here to get, get some help, we're going to cry out to it, and we're going to see to ask these gods to help us. And you know what? We're an equal opportunity worshiper. You know, pick one. Maybe he's the one, right? Maybe that's the one that's going to help us. I don't know which, you know, the more gods we, we have to choose from, the greater the likelihood we'll get the right one, right? So we, may, we can look at them and say, ah, those poor pagan idol worshipers, they were, they were wrong. Yes, they were wrong, but, but they're crying out to their God. 
And so as I, as I look at that and I, I, I see that, I think, you know, that this is, the, the, as we will see in a, in, a, in a week or two, this was a very fruitful missionary ground, not so much for Jonah, but for God. They're already theists. They're already people who believe there's a God. If you, if you want to read something interesting about this, read uh, C.S. Lewis's kind of testimony about how he came to faith and surprised by joy because he didn't come to faith in, in Christ the way many of us do. He had to be convinced first that there was a God. And once he was convinced there was a God, it was, it was not that difficult for him uh, to make the connection then with the, with the Christian gospel, right? And that Jesus was indeed that God. And so, so the fact is, this is as we look at this, they are crying out to the wrong God, no doubt, and I'm sure they're doing it in the wrong way and all of that. But you know what? The, the fact of the matter is they're recognizing, they're seeing that in the midst of this situation, in the midst of the crisis, we need help, and we're in this all together. Literally, we're all in the same boat. And we're all going to go down with this boat if something doesn't happen. Someone doesn't help us right? Uh, I, I, I just think it is it, it's such an interesting thing for us to think about that, right? Like, wh whose boat are we in? Why, what boat are we in? It, who, who are the other people on our boat, right? As we walk through life, right? So the community is in trouble. All of them are at risk. And though all of them are at risk, there are, everybody on the ship knows they're at risk except one, right? And so where's Jonah? He's asleep. Now, this is interesting to me, right? How in the world is he asleep? How is that possible? How, how can that be? How can he be asleep? Well, I had somebody after the first service say, well, God made him, put him to sleep. Well, the text doesn't say that. <laughs> Just says he's asleep. Now, I know for me, I, there have been times in my life where I've slept and it didn't make any sense at all. And other times where I should be able to go right to sleep and I can't. You know, maybe, maybe, he had, maybe they had melatonin, right? Isn't that the, the health food thing that you get that's supposed to knock you out? Uh, none of that stuff works on me, right? So we have to ask the question, how is he, what kind of sleep is, it, is he getting, right? Well, maybe he's just tired. You know, he, he's running from God. He is, the second God comes and calls him, what does he do? Man, he drops what he's doing, scrapes up his money, grabs whatever he's got, and heads to the seashore, gets on a ship to take off. And so maybe he's tired. Maybe he's fatigued. I don't think that's it. Maybe he's depressed, one of the ways we know that people are, one of the signs of depression is that people sleep a lot, right? They sleep a whole lot. They're trying to get away from what's uh, happening to them. And sometimes sleeping a lot and, and lacking energy or whatever is, is a way that they're coping with the stress or the sadness or the difficulty of their lives. I tend to think that might be part of what's going on here. This is way before we had any depressants, and so I don't know what, the, what, what you did for sad people, but my guess is that part of what's going on is Jonah is stressed out psychologically, and one of the ways he's dealing with this is he's gone to sleep. Ye years ago, when Hurricane Isabel came through, y'all remember that, if you were here? You know, what a scary thing. 
Scared the daylights out of me. I'll never forget the sound of those big trees in our neighborhood hitting the ground. That was something, man. It shaked the house. And um, yeah, it was, it was wild. And so a, a, a tree, or one of our neighbor's trees fell and knocked the top off another tree and it hit our house. And, you know, I'm, what, what did I do? Well, I walked, I went out the back door to see what was going on in the middle of the hurricane with the flashlight. And right as I did, the trees crashed up against the house and Marty and the kids thought I was dead. I couldn't get in the, it, it blocked the door. I couldn't get back in the back door. So I had to go around to the front of the house and they couldn't hear me. And so we had a moment of terror. <laughs> so I get back in the house and my, my middle son, <laughs> who was terrified of weather anyway, you know, they say only middle-aged people watch the Weather Channel. This, as a 10-year-old, he was locked on the Weather Channel, man. He loved the Weather Channel. And he's like, we have to leave. Except he wasn't that calm. He's screaming at me, we have to leave. And he knows, he knew Jim Tetterton, who was a Henrico County police officer. He's like, we need to find Mr. Jim to come and put us in his police car and take us somewhere safe. He's just screaming. And I'm like, son, listen, you know, first of all, you're going to put Jim at risk to come get us. So you don't love Jim. That went over well. And then, and then, and then second of all, we're safer here than we are out being out in the storm. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for us to do that. He's like, so we're not leaving? I'm like, no, we're not leaving. And you know what he did? He laid down on the floor in the middle of the hurricane and went to sleep. He was terrified. Moments before he was screaming at me, but once he realized, oh, I'm stuck in it, the stress was so great, he didn't want to stay awake any longer, he went to sleep. Maybe that's what's happening to Jonah. Maybe the stress of fleeing from God, the stress of, of being in the storm, maybe, maybe that's what's happening. The worst case scenario is that Jonah's relieved, that he's away from God. He's away from the call of God. And he's like, I can finally relax. He's going to leave me alone. Hope it's not that one. Hope, hope that's not what's going on here, right? So here he is, not helping the sailors, not helping the situation, and they're going from bad to worse. And so his guilt and his disobedience puts not only himself at risk, but it's putting others at risk as well, right? Jonah knows the truth. He knows God. God speaks to him, and God speaks through him, and he's useless in this situation. Now, we know our theology allows us to say that God is so big and so great that his common grace extends in so many ways that there are so many great things in the world that come to us from this God of grace that come to us through people who don't even know him, right? So this is a great quote here from Tim Keller. So the image of God in common grace means non-Christians are never as bad as their wrong beliefs would otherwise make them. Praise the Lord, right? Remaining sin means Christians are never as good as their right beliefs should make them. 
So Christians should not act and feel as superior as many do. Not all, so some of you are off the hook, but as many do, right? Now, if you've ever been to a seminary, which I would not, you know, it's its its, its own thing, but it, if you've ever been to a seminary, one of the things you'll find on a seminary campus is a lot of crazy people, okay? A lot of crazy people, and there's a reason for that. Seminary is designed to make you crazy. It is, because you sit, you saturate every single day with rich, biblical, theological teaching. You learn so much. It is, it is amazing the depths that you learn of the scriptures and the theological insights of the fathers of the church and the, the biographies of great saints that have gone up before. You're just filling it up, learning it, learning it, learning it, learning it, learning it. And your ability to learn and be able to take tests and write papers way outstrips your ability to actually do anything with that rich stuff that you're learning. And that gap between what you know and what you do is so great, it makes people crazy. It, it, is, uh, it, it is so disorienting. It is so, it is so difficult, you know, and, 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 and just in terms of just straight up um, sanity, it would be better to just know a little bit and allow the Spirit of God to, to make you faithful in that little bit to do and to love and to minister and to speak the truth in that little bit sometimes than it is to know so much and be able to apply so little. And so I want to go back to the question again of at least in some ways, in some situations, people who are not as mature, maybe even not believers, actually behave in a way that is more faithful often than we do. Um, one day, you and I will go to heaven and we will bow the knee before the lion of the tribe of Judah, David's true son. And so we hold up David as this paragon of the man after God's own heart. David was so unique and God loved him so much that God made a covenant with David that someone from David's line would always sit on the throne, that he was dear to God, that God protected him, that he loved him, that he uniquely gifted him, so much so that it made other people jealous of David. And so one day, David, rather than go and do what he's supposed to do, in his pride, sees the wife of one of his soldiers bathing across the way on her roof. And he takes her. And she gets pregnant. And he's got to do something about it. And so Uriah, her husband, the Hittite, right? Not, not a Jew, not a Jewish person, the Hittite, her husband is out fighting for David. And so what does David do? So David sent word to Joab, his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present, some people following him from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why'd you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, you, David, your servants are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. But David's, if nothing, if not resourceful. So he says, then, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Listen, Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober in this situation. Literally, that should sober us up that that's a possibility, that the Hittite behaves in a more faithful way than God's representative on earth, God's king, God's anointed one is who David is. Now, it's not always like that. And I will certainly say to you that the boat that we're in today is a messy boat, full of abominations, full of terrible things. And yet the question remains, right? We who have the truth, we who know the love of God, we who know the, the, the very design of the, of the world and the design of human beings and what it means to be created in the image of God, the, the question is to us, you know, where, would, are, are we any good? Right? Is the world a better place because we're in it? And let me be clear about this, you know. I think, I think one of the things that we have to say about that, I don't want you to take this so much and make this an individualized thing, is the world a better place because I'm in it? But I want you to think about the body of Christ, the believers, the, the people, uh, the community of faith. Is the world a better place because we're here? Is the ministry, is the aroma of Jesus Christ such that it is drawing those who are seeking life and repelling those who are not seeking life? But is Jesus being upheld not only in our words and not only in our correction and our rightful correction of what's happening, but is Jesus being held up in the way that we love those who are different from us? The people on the ship with us who are crying out to whatever God they might have to try to figure out how to get them out of that mess, right? So how is our right belief making a difference to those, literally our neighbors around us? Um, I noticed that the early service, there were several visitors here, and, you know, when that's always a nerve-wracking thing for a preacher, you know, because uh, you worry, is the coffee any good? Did anybody say hey to him? Oh, and worse yet, are you any good today? You know, so, so as you, you think about that, and as I thought about it this morning, you know, the, the question is, if they came here and somebody invited them here, they probably were told that they would hear a lot about grace. 
this morning. Well, there are two words of grace before we come to the Lord's table. God loves Jonah. Amazing. And if you're not struck by that, then I would submit to you that it might be difficult for you to really believe that God loves you. But God loves Jonah. And God loves those sailors, weirdly, as we'll see, because he put Jonah right in the middle of them. But we know that our God doesn't just stand back and preach to us. We know that our God just doesn't stand back and give us a book. He does that. He communicates with us. But our God comes and strides into our world and takes on our flesh and our sin and our wreck and our death. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the, 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 the pattern that we see if we ever doubt the love of God or we ever doubt the truth of God actually coming and in, it becoming flesh, taking on flesh and walking into our world and doing the work that only he could do. That doctrine is not there just to tell us that Jesus is God. That doctrine is there to tell us, go and do likewise. You have the grace of God. You have the approval of God. You have the righteousness of Christ. You have the justification that Jesus Christ lived to give to you. Love your neighbor. So as we come to the table today, one of the great things that we have uh, to be reminded of is, is that uh, when, we, when we eat the Lord's Supper, sometimes it is a little messy here. We, we spill some crumbs, and we come up here, and we're like, all right, I want the prepackaged one, but my wife wants the gluten-free wafer with juice, and my kid wants, you know, whatever it is you want, and you, you think, oh, I wish this was quieter, and there was so much more reverent and that sort of thing. Well, the first Lord's Supper, you know, they were almost fighting with each other, they're scared to death that they're the one who's going to betray Jesus. They're bragging that they would never do that. It's not a very reverent scene. And that it, yet Jesus loves those sinners. That's good news for us today as we come to the table. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my Father has sent to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's use uh, Psalm 5 here to confess our sins. Would you pray with me? Hear our words and our groanings, O Lord. Give attention to our cry for mercy. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Forgive us, good Lord. We have sinned against you and our neighbor. We have sought to justify ourselves before you. We have attempted to atone for our own sins and punish the sins of others. And so we have boasted in sin and self. By your mercy alone, by the abundance of your steadfast love, may we enter your house because of your Son, O Lord. Let us find refuge in you. Take away our sins and let us ever sing for joy. Cover us with your favor as with a shield for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters,